I don't right. even know. Go for it. We'll do it. I mean, later. I, I love y'all. We'll do it later. I love we'll y'all. Do it live. I mean, as a Valentine's Day, this do it live. Is... We'll do it live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fuck it. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. Fuck this shit. Live always goes well for us. Fuck this shit. We'll do it live. I'll bring you, you Americans and your movie references. <laughs> I am so glad. I am so glad so many people got that. <laughs> All right, everyone. Welcome to episode 14 of the Disaster Dads. Thanks all for joining. Um, you know, we're always happy to have you join us every other week, and we're happy to be here to talk with you. A uh, couple of housekeeping items. If you haven't checked it out, Mr. Dan followed through and created a Facebook account for the Disaster Dads. So check it out. It's just as simple as it can be, Disaster Dads on Facebook. Just visit us. You're going to get behind-the-scenes pictures. You may even see a couple of our mugs from tonight's episode as we're recording. Uh, as, as always, visit us at DisasterDads.com and check us out on Twitter at DisasterDads. We have some fans. Actually, communication is happening. Uh, who was it we were talking with most recently? Francis Frog uh, at Francis Frog. Thank you very much for the chatter. You should watch uh, Deep Impact. Uh, it's the best. So tonight... Though we're gonna do the opposite, we're gonna review Armageddon. No, I'm not kidding. I'm I'm joking. We're not gonna do Armageddon tonight. That would uh, make me so happy. <laughs> it's getting close. Um, the dads are are happy to have one of our our favorite friends, uh, longtime listener of the show, and just an all around great guy, Jay. Uh, Jay, hey, I, jo- I have a whole, whole intro. Thing? Oh, uh, no, I'm. So I have a whole intro written out. Man. I am going to cede some authority here, and I am happy to let Dan. He started the Facebook account. He's got a little taste of power, and so uh, uh, join us for this. Uh, just, it's it's all Dan's show tonight. So I'm just right. one that's I am I am drunk mix. with with power. Oh, he's got the martinis again. again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we actually we have a, we have a very special episode tonight. Uh, I think that one of the things that we would all agree. On about our time at the uh, in the fire service, you know, other than riding in big red trucks that went really fast, was getting to work with some really interesting and noteworthy colleagues. You know, both career firefighters and fellow volunteers. Um, you know, people that I, I think we would all agree were you know truly inspiring, who really wanted to serve with distinction and try and make the world a better place. Sadly, none of those people were say. available tonight. <laughs> like you need a towel over there, you need to clean yourself up. So, uh, uh, but tonight we were able to dig up our good friend Jay. Uh, Jay and I ran into each other a few weeks ago at a dinner that most of the other dads were not invited to. I, I was invited. I think all of them. Uh, yeah, Joe nope, was Joe. invited, but uh, could not get um, uh, a, uh, a hall pass. A pass filed with his commanding <laughs> officer at the time. Yeah. To uh, to attend, uh, Jay is, and I we got the okay to say this, so I'm going to say it. We can edit it out in post. We have to. Jay is a field security officer with the UN assistance mission in Afghanistan, uh, meaning he's the real deal. He's out there and he's doing it. He is um, uh, uh, working in a fairly stressful and I think foreign environment. Uh, for him and a lot of his colleagues. 
<laughs> and the <laughs> lights just flickered yeah. in his room via Skype, so this could get interesting. But he's got uh, Nilla wafers Joe, in the background, Joe, so he's your, good. How's your Jay impersonation? Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> he is uh, also a former firefighter and EMT, question mark? Yes. You can talk, You're Jay. To it's, talk. Okay. It's, it's fine. You're We're here to talk. talk to you. It's weird. Yeah. I, I, it's, I haven't done this in like five years. So well, well, I, hey. I'm way behind the curtain in terms of the technology over here. Jay, you just have to talk into the mic. If any, the, the job of not talking on the uh, show goes to me. So yeah. I'm just going to be silent. The rest of the night. Which is why his <laughs> screen is blank. Here. So Jay, Jay is a Jay is a former firefighter EMT uh, with us at our former department, uh, and uh, is currently over in Afghanistan working security. So Jay, welcome to the pod. We appreciate it very much. Yay! Yay! Happy to have you on. Golf clap. That's Thanks. a real, so, that's real so, laugh, guys. Let's just start by getting a little background on, on where you are and, and what you're doing now. How how long have you been in this job? Um, I actually have to uh, throw a disclaimer out there. Um, I just wanted to make it very clear <laughs> that um, my views and opinions... No, sorry. My views and opinions do not reflect uh, the United Nations or any of its affiliate organizations or any member state uh, to the international organizations that I've just mentioned as part of the UN system. Right. So I'm strictly or speaking. Or the National by, Football League or Major League Baseball. My God, and on and on and on. You and know on. what, Jay? If if we do yeah. get brought on charges for this, I would be so happy because our listenership would go through the roof. I feel very bad about everything that <laughs> you have be to awesome. go through. But, you know, the fact that someone was listening to us and took us to that level. I'd I'd be kind of I'd be a little excited on the inside. That would go yeah, over we'd, well. Yeah, cry all the way to the. Now you have an official disclaimer to. Uh, <laughs> Since we to don't have that, we don't have that insure money coming in yet for the sponsorship. It would be a little difficult, but we'd we'd bag some stuff and it would go over well. Um, yeah, also, you got a strange sense of fun there, Maverick. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, yeah, so as you guys know, um, I've started working for the UN. In 2010, July, that's uh, exactly when I left uh, the D.C. metro area. And I've been doing this since then. Uh, my first assignment was in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, where I was the assistant chief of operations for the Security and Safety Service, basically a, a group of 150 armed security officers that protect the uh, largest U.N. compound in the world, apparently. Um, <laughs> then afterwards, um, I moved to uh, Afghanistan after doing that for three years. Um, I went to Gardez, uh, which is near the uh, border with Pakistan, was there for about two years, and then I moved up to Kabul in 2015. Uh, basically, what we do as uh, security officers with the UN is our primary goal is to enable UN programs in the safest and possible manner uh, in, in various different forms that could include doing uh, conducting security risk assessments, um, going out and meeting with our uh, partners and interlocutors, collecting information, uh, getting the lay of the land on the areas that we operate, uh, coordinating security uh, security arrangements when UN programs actually are implemented, and to make sure that we pr also provide oversight and supervision uh, to our uh, non-security colleagues who actually do the work going out there in the field very difficult places, as you know in the news, uh, Syria, Yemen, Libya, all these places, they actually go out there, and we want to make sure that they are compliant with the security rules. We provide them guidance and uh, uh, and advice uh, before they actually conduct these missions, what they exactly need to do. 
And um, last but not least, we also provide training, uh, training in the sense of uh, safe and secure approaches uh, to these high-risk environments, what they should be doing, what they should not be doing, mm-hmm. how to use a radio, uh, how to apply for a aid, and whatnot. So that's basically it in a nutshell. And we, and I think we probably do a lot uh, more, uh, do these with a lot more complexity than me trying to explain this in, in three minutes. But um, sure. that's basically what it is, Dan. And, and Jay, I would imagine, I mean, if, if you and your security colleagues had, had your say, You'd keep all of your guys, all of the all of the programmatic people, you know, behind walls, safe and sound, tucked into a, a compound all the time. But given the nature of your work, that's simply not possible, right? I mean, given the mission that you guys have in Afghanistan and some of those other places you mentioned, you have to be out in the community and interacting with the local folks, right? That is exactly correct. Um, unlike other diplomatic missions where that the 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 first the first uh, description that you just explained where we're behind T walls and Hescos that is just simply not the case because the UN essentially is uh, supported and funded by uh, donors and especially the member states which includes the US and South Korea as well um, and these donors um, they invest in the UN so that they can see certain results they want to see a certain outcome in terms of uh, development in terms of capacity building, humanitarian aid, assistance, you name it. Uh, we, we basically do everything. And um, for us to be able to deliver, especially in high-risk locations, we have uh, an obligation and a responsibility to uh, return back to the people in need um, who, who do require assistance to go into places that other people won't. And uh, it's our job to make sure that the people who are actually executing those uh, programs are given the benefit of the doubt that they are uh, supported by the UN, supported by the member states, to be able to deliver uh, these programs again in the safest and uh, safest and secure, most secure possible manner. Well, Jay, I think that's a really important um, description to give to folks because I think a lot of people, based on the media. Uh, Uh, portrayal of the UN think about a bunch of diplomats in New York City um, talking and talking and talking and and not paying parking tickets Uh, (laughs) and um, while that may be true to a certain extent in New York there's also thousands of people that are under the umbrella of the UN including yourself who are about as far from downtown Manhattan as you can uh, as you can get so I, I appreciate that I think that's an important uh, point. So there's there were a few uh, uh, points that I wanted to hit when we were talking tonight, and we were just sort of spitballing about what we could talk about. Frankly, we could make this a really long podcast, um, which we know from listener feedback is really popular. So we'll try and <laughs> we do that. really when we cross that 75 minute threshold. That's when I I get the most comments. I think that goes yeah. well. Yeah. So we'll try and keep it. We'll try and keep this to a tight 60. Yeah, but uh, the the first thing that I wanted to talk to you about is something that I think everybody on the podcast um, um, has some experience with, which is emergency medicine. And you know, a, some of our listeners are very technical folks because they send us very technical feedback. But a lot of our listeners are uh, not technical at all, meaning they don't necessarily have an EMT cert or even maybe a first responder cert. So. 
you know, when you're thinking through with some of your folks that you're working with who are far away from access to sort of normal medical care that we might see in the States, for example, where we're talking to you from, <clears throat> what are the kinds of things that you talk to them about? What kind of strategy or thoughts do you have when you're traveling to a really remote area or you're having people that are traveling to a remote area? You know, talk us through your thought process. You know, we're not going to go through the ins and outs of a of a combat tourniquet or uh, something like that. But, you know, what are your what are your thought processes? I, I do look forward to hearing what you have to say about what Dan asked, because on a very tertiary level, it's kind of some of the stuff we've talked about is just when you I, and I'm talking just you can kind of see it at the same this the same way, like when you go out in public with your kids or whatever, and it's like, you know, unfamiliar territory what do you do it's kind of i i picture you as like the father figure in the compound telling all the kids how to play nice outside not get in trouble when you get your knee skin this is where you go so yeah. um yeah and eric surprisingly that is uh this is that's actually pretty accurate in terms of <laughs> they like to complain to you that you are the the authoritative uh, authoritative figure that always says no 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 but when it comes to when it comes to running drills or if they if they hear an IED go off uh, outside of the compound, then automatically I get like 15 text messages and five phone calls and 40, 100 emails about what was that? What was that? What was that? Yeah. And they know the routine. They know the routine. Whenever we hear something, we look at the situation. We make our calls to confirm what exactly the nature of the, uh, the, the explosion was. And then we put out an advisory. We, we put out alerts. We don't want our staff members to be left in the dark but every single time i mean they 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 go through this they know us in person they know exactly what the routine is and they still for some reason um i guess it's just the inherent nature of people uh being in that type of environment and always uh being uh keeping their head on a swivel or always mm-hmm. uh keeping on, on their toes and which is perfectly understandable, and that's part of that. That's a large part. I would say about eighty percent of that, uh, of of the outreach of the of the interaction with uh, uh, non-security staff members is probably eighty uh, percent of exactly what we do. Um, and in some cases, people just come into our offices on a regular day and just sit there and just talk. And you're typing away your emails, you're doing your security risk assessments, you're making phone calls to direct your guard force and whatnot, and they, can't, they, they just keep talking. And uh, this is where we realize that not only do we provide security services, we also provide stress counseling services, though <laughs> we're not no, nowhere nearly as qualified. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly we're not psychiatrists and uh, uh, professional counselors that would be able to do that. But I think a lot of people in, uh, in high-risk missions, they... I, they get that reassurance that if something happens, at least I'm in, in this guy's office, he would be able to grab me by the, the back <laughs> of the collar and drag me to the bunker. Yep. Um, but yeah, so coming back to the original question, Dan. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Jake. <laughs> God damn. Sorry that took a while. I'd like to apologize for the lack of professionalism from my colleagues. <laughs> go ahead, Jake. I love it. Hey. I love it. Um, I'll I'll probably go more into my uh, experiences dealing with uh, medical planning uh, and mass yeah. casualty incident planning back when I was in Gardez. Gardez is Gardez is uh, one of those locations where um, 
there are always ongoing problems in terms of clashes with insurgencies, but still not as important. Probably Gardez was is considered important because it um, connects the roads, uh, the major routes uh, from three different provinces that lead up to Kabul. Um, it does have uh, historically it does have uh, some strategic importance, um, but it still the fact doesn't remain uh, fact fact doesn't change that it is still out in the middle of nowhere. So um, <laughs> right. we as it doesn't solve right. the problem that it's still in the middle of Afghanistan. Go on. Well, right. if you, if you look at other places like like Kandahar, Jalalabad, uh, Herat, Mazar, all these places that still the U.S. Uh, the uh, international military forces still maintain a large presence and they do have. Uh, full medical facilities out there. Uh, that's mm-hmm. necessarily not the case for Gardez. Uh, uh, Gardez was one of the first uh, locations where the uh, basically the FOBs, uh, the the American FOBs, uh, pulled out in Ford operating bases. Exactly. Sorry, um, FOBs, Ford operating bases, as Eric just put it. Um, they were one of the first to close down um, and relocate to these uh, so-called uh, hubs and spokes. So we were pretty much left with uh, with a diminished capacity, and it took us a while to figure out just exactly how we were going to plan on uh, getting staff members out if they were critically injured or if they had a heart attack, they had some kind of medical condition that uh, was no longer uh, manageable by our local doctors. Uh, we do have a we do have a, a certain level of medical capability in the uh, area, but not to the standard that uh, we would like. Uh, and obviously, when it, especially when it comes to trauma, uh, we would like to get our staff members uh, to a higher level medical facility, which yeah. uh, within what we would like to uh, call the golden hour. Jay, that's a so, great but, point, and that that that's a term that we're all familiar with because that's. That's the standard, basically, for both in the military setting or in in uh, an international setting, as well as just for your fire department down the street from your house, right? And basically, what that means for our listeners is, from the moment of incident to the moment that you reach definitive care, whether that be a cardiologist or a trauma surgeon or just an ER nurse to wrap a sprained ankle, whatever that might happen to be, to get to the definitive care, the care you need to fix that problem should be 60 minutes. And if you don't hit that, you start to run into problems like infections, shock. I mean, obviously, depending on the severity of the situation, the outcomes are, you know, run the gamut. But um, that that's a that's a great point to bring up. So sorry to interrupt. No, no, absolutely. And um, it's especially important for um, for any type of operation operating in remote locations where distance is in, in is an issue, you are in the deep field. Uh, you do have you do make some certain provisions to uh, bring with you uh, some sort of medical capability, but uh, that is certainly not the case uh, in uh, many instances. Um, I forgot to mention earlier that the UN. Uh, 80% of UN operations are out in the field, whether that's uh, a place in a developing country uh, to uh, high-risk locations such as Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, uh, Syria. So um, we we have been doing this for a while. Uh, and uh, in, in certain cases, because of uh, 
changing circumstances, unique circumstances out in the field, we do run into the same problems with different people. And sometimes that puts us at odds in terms of trying to apply best practices and to see uh, how we can, sh you know, shorten the time we have to deal with those situations and whatnot. Um, so anyway, coming back to Gardez, um, at the time when the, uh, when the Americans, uh, you guys, you guys left us to, uh, uh, left us behind, but, um, we left a note uh, <laughs> that, that, that you did, you did, uh, you did leave a huge footprint. So at the time, one of the, one of the core missions for the, uh, for the U S uh, troops there was to uh, build a level two hospital. And uh, they were still in the process of building up that cap uh, capacity, and they were still um, – it was still pending. So we did have a gap there. Um, and in trying to figure out how to uh, fill that gap, uh, basically what, what I had to do as – and not many security officers do have the, uh, the background that um, we have as uh, firefighters and EMTs that – that basic emergency medical pre-hospital care certification, especially on the field like Afghanistan. So um, I basically had to take it upon myself to um, come up with a community-based approach. We, as security officers, compared to uh, the ratio of non-security officers, I would say probably about um, 10 to 15 to 1 on average, wherever you go. Uh, and and really? in other cases, larger operations, that ratio becomes uh, more uh, more at odds. So 10 uh, to 15 programmatic folks to one security officer. You can basically say that. Um, wow. I would, and that's probably not even factoring in the support staff, the national staff um, who are assistants to the program managers. Um, so and in larger missions, again, yeah. I was going to say, just in some of these high-risk areas, though, um, to keep your independent status as the as the you know United as the UN and and the operations you do, you probably don't play a lot with local security forces, so you have to rely upon your own. So you're just seen as a very independent, provide your own stuff. So you're you're kind of you're very self-reliant, right? We pursue basically every. Um, um, uh, actor in the area um, that has uh, a major role to play in uh, the security situation, yeah. whether that be um, the security actors, the the local government, politicians, uh, tribal elders, uh, just uh, the community in general, uh, hospitals, schools, you name it. Um, yeah. Where we can engage, uh, we will we will try and uh, uh, and uh, make that outreach effort as much as possible um, to see. If there are, uh, because we, 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 when we talk about security, it's not just the, the traditional security we talk about, physical security, uh, guys with guns, um, walls, um, x-rays, you name it, mm -hmm. delta barriers. We also want to uh, be proactive about what the local community's perception toward the UN is yeah. and yeah. how what we can do to shape that perception. Um the way uh, we were mandated to do, um, you know, there, there are all kinds of uh, documents in terms of international conventions, uh, and as uh, stated in our charter, is to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, and uh, we want to do that in the most uh, uh, most huma uh, humanitarian uh, way that respects all uh, virtues of human rights uh, and the fancy Geneva Convention that you always hear about in the news. Yeah. Um, but 
So coming back to coming back again to uh, medical, um, the community-based approach was the the approach that um, I wanted to adopt it, and that was actually modeled off of um, the experiences that we as firefighters we we go through with our birthday parties, with our open house, uh, with uh, these community outreach programs that um, we were exposed to. Um, and especially the uh, the CERT, the was it the Community Emergency Response Team? Did I get that name right? Yep, right? Yep. So basically, what I had to do was um, send out an email saying I'm going to hold a one day IFAC course. Uh, 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 an IFAC uh, for for our listeners is an individual first aid kit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a full medic bag as we would uh, uh, throw in our uh, in the back of our rigs or 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 vans or our trucks. Uh, right. But something individual that uh, you carry with uh, as part of your your mission kit, uh, right. so to speak. And, and for for the folks that are that aren't necessarily as familiar with that as some of us might be, is uh, to think about that basically as something that might fit in the size of like a cargo pant pocket or something like that. So you're talking about a really small kit that can literally just keep you alive for a little while if you run into some really big problem. Yeah, exactly. Also, reminder to always wear cargo pants and cargo shorts. So it's important. (laughs) Well, if you look at Jay's Facebook pictures, you'll know that he's abiding by that rule. And as far as... My man loves some Earth Tone. My man loves some Earth Tone outfits. Holy shit. I'm going to buy something that's not khaki or... Flat dark earth. The next time you're in town, <laughs> I will actually make a huge effort to uh, say something about that later on. Uh, I've, I've got some notes here. If I can understand my own handwriting. Well, Jay, just because we're trying to keep this to a tight 80 minutes, I want to transition to another topic that I wanted to I, talk to you about. And actually, that I got li- to lighten it up real quick and bring it back to our our dad listeners and. Most of our dad listeners are very familiar with the dad uniform of cargo shorts and cargo pants, so that yes. is not going to be any kind of <laughs> yeah. questionable attire for any of our listeners. I think we're all on the same page there, no matter where you're listening. 100%. I, so if, if you want to start I, carrying an IFAC in your cargo shorts, you can or in your diaper form. bag. Or your diaper bag. Or I recommend, Jay, you could probably bring the dad gear vest into play lots of pockets it's almost like a concealed carry but it just it not quite as much you guys don't not know quite. the uh, tactical diaper bag uh, oh, we, oh that, we, we've talked oh, about it several times yeah i, I we're, we're gonna have we're gonna have a full review on that in the future I, yeah rob's specking one out for our listeners right, right now it was like we're, we're just, wait, we're just waiting for the product reviews to come in so we yeah. can actually yeah. we can't actually afford some of the tactical baby carriers and the tactical <laughs> yeah. base we're right. waiting for we those donations to come in donations review materials yeah all right. Tactical is all right. Back to back to the cargo pants. Professionalism, guys. Professionalism. What do I always okay. harp on in I'm our be meetings? Professional, Dan, and, and cut you off real quick. I just want to bring it back real quick so we can understand. Jay, you were talking about working with other actors in the field, and um, you know we may call that mutual aid. You talked about training in the beginning uh, and working with these other people. How much training do you do with you know like the local city or or town? security forces or even like hospitals on that matter that are outside of um, the UN. Eric mentioned you being self-sufficient, but again, I think you might've touched on the outreach you have, but, but how, I guess, expansive is it on a daily basis? Uh, 
typically, when I talk about training, typically it's not anything to do with uh, our external external interlocutors. Um, we do a lot of drills That's and exercises. a lot exercises. of words right there. Well good done, Jared. Word. Yeah, yeah, those I are like good it. words. I like yeah. that. I, I don't know. I'm Asian. Means. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and Joe knows exactly what I mean. <laughs> oh, God. But Joe knows exactly what I mean. Don Rickles on the podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I like how I like how we're all drinking like cocktails and beer, and Jay's drinking his morning coffee. <laughs> and Joe just Googled interlocutor, so we're all good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Wrote it down. Have no idea what it means. Gonna look it up. Awesome. Uh, we got to read more books, Joe. I get it. Sorry. So maybe not on a daily basis, Jay, but but I, yeah. I guess so there, um, there is there is cross training with. Your organization and other in-country local organizations, correct? Yes, yes, we do. Um, in 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 any in any country that we operate, um, the and this is also in in convention is that the host country that uh, the UN is present or any diplomatic mission for that matter, uh, they the host country is primarily responsible for those uh, diplomatic and foreign present uh, foreign missions in their country. So we, we want to make sure that um, we get the full benefit of that protection from the host country. And in order for us to do that, we as uh, security professionals, we are the ones who uh, collect information on what their capa- and capabilities are, what can be done to improve it. And that's why we do these exercises, obviously. Um, in, in our profession, uh, the plans... Uh, Almost ninety percent of the time fall uh, fall apart, but it's the, <laughs> the actual planning uh, that uh, that matters. And through that okay. planning uh, process, uh, we do uh, achieve a certain level of readiness and responsiveness uh, to make sure that uh, we we don't um, you know be affected as adversely as um, as we would have uh, we would if we weren't prepared. So. Okay. That's just like a great just, mantra for life. You know, 90% of the time yeah. the plan doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, but doesn't if work. you've gone through the process and you know what you had in mind, you can you can trust yourself to know where you're supposed to be going and you can figure it out. That's whether it's security security examinations, whatever it may be, security all of that or just literally life in general, just trying to do something somewhere, you know, with the family or whatever you're doing. As long as you've planned it out and you spent that time, you're good because it's never going to go the way you want. Just had two real questions for you, Jake. Give us an idea of, um, like you were talking about being in in Gardez, how how far away from a hospital or or critical care are you, just to give our viewers, our listeners, uh, an idea. And then second, I know you have training as an EMTB, but what type of other training do some of your, your coworkers and your colleagues have? Is it first aid, basic, um, of, of, a basic or as an EMT or what do you guys got? Yeah, Frank, um, let me just answer your first, uh, your second question first. Uh, the UN uh, at some point identified the need to uh, roll out uh, an advanced uh, pre-hospital care um, medical training package to fill those gaps where uh, security, uh, not security, uh, UN staff members actually operate in remote locations. Because wherever you have a UN presence, you will have some sort of uh, security presence there as well. Uh, um, for example, people like myself. 
So um, they, uh, about, I would say about 10 years ago, the UN rolled out what they call an emergency trauma bag course. Um, the ETB course is a standardized course. It's, it's five days long, and it is based on a, a, a bag, based, the ETB, the actual ETB, that is standard all across the world. Whichever UN duty station you go to, you will see the same emergency trauma bag. That is awesome. So that's awesome. the so, airlines can't even get that worked out yeah. right. Yeah. So this this bag basically, if you open it up, uh, the pouches are the same. The color coding of which color pouches contains what, they're pretty much the same. And the course is standardized throughout the world. Um, and we have been delivering this uh, primarily to security officers because they are expected to uh, respond to the uh, incident as first responders, uh, as well as uh, being the incident commanders of the incident. But also um, to fill that gap, to stabilize uh, any, any staff member that has been injured, and to uh, give that person enough time to make it to a higher care medical facility within the golden hour, as we all mentioned. And obviously, the other medical plans and the MCA plans uh, follow through after that. Um, so we try to achieve a, com a certain uh, percentage of compliance. Um, right now, our mission, I would say probably about 90% uh, of security officers are trained. This uh, it, it, The ETB program uh, has people who are initially certified have to uh, renew this certification every three years through a three-day refresher. The instructors, um, at, and as you can imagine, I'm also an instructor myself, um, um, the minimum qualifications are EMT basic and above. So we do have, among security officers, we do have people who are certified as paramedics, as uh, physician assistants, and also yeah. uh, doctors. Well, one of our lead instructors here is a doctor from another country. Um, in the region, so and like a brother is, from another mother. <laughs> Sorry, the way that came out, it just <laughs> that. You know, I actually prepared Central for Asia, this one. Yes, I have a whole outline, and Frank with his two-part questions, and Eric with his dad jokes are just <laughs> torpedoing this mother uh, right down the tube. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's like right, the White House press briefing room of podcasts. It is. It is. <laughs> Frank, what was your first question again? Yeah. How, far, the how far are some of these places from, mm. from advanced hospital care? Asked and answered. So, I mean, um, I don't want to go into too much uh, details because some of these locations that we did have to go to are, are sensitive areas. But I would say um, if we didn't have the let, – let, let's put it this way because I think this is important. This is what we want to get into in terms of emergency managers and dealing with disasters is that without planning – uh, we would basically be locked in our compounds until uh, somebody flies in okay. to uh, wow. get us out. But with with the outreach and the and the interaction and the uh, so-called you know ground level negotiations uh, and uh, understanding that we go through, um, I would say at the most at, at, at the shortest probably about with under 10 minutes. So I would probably say within the 10 to 20 minute time period for the local, for us to get to a local medical facility. And uh, the 20 minute time frame would be um, the, the facility that we idealistically would like to go to because it 
it is the uh, it is the most uh, uh, highest level of medical care we have we have in the uh, in that particular region. Uh, within Kabul, I mean, there 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 are a lot. Um, so it basically is a matter of how do you negotiate the traffic. Uh, traffic is uh, the, the, the biggest. That's a universal constant. The EDB bag looks the same, and traffic is everywhere. Traffic, uh, traffic here is um, is. I I don't want to uh, uh, I don't want to offend anybody, but um, it, it, it is. Why not? It is Why the wild not? West. What we do this for. It is the wild west. It is the Have wild west. Have you listened west. to the last episode? Okay. Yes, I'm I pretty did. Sure. So. But but again, I'm Asian. I'm supposed yeah. to be polite about these types of things. <laughs> we we Jay, we offended Manassas vehemently in the last All right. episode. So yeah. All right, guys, let's ahead. let's try and move this along. All right, let's I know let's, Eric let's wants let me to Dan get back last to his, topic, uh... but, but I'm not going to yet. So first, what I want to talk to very briefly um, is one of the things that we keep coming back to when we're talking to folks, especially folks that don't have you know, firehouse experience or medical experience, military experience, is the idea of situational awareness. And it's one thing to talk about situational awareness when you're in your hometown or you're in your city or you're just out and about on your day. It's another thing entirely when you're talking about situational awareness in a place where you don't speak the language, you don't know the local customs. If you could just really briefly give us some ideas of what are some of the things that you talk to people about who are not familiar with Afghanistan or who are not familiar with Kabul about what are some of the signs that you look about, look for um, that are, that, that you keep your eyes out for when, when you're in a place that you're not as familiar with as you might be elsewhere. Well, dad, I, I think the biggest thing that people have to keep in mind and some people completely disregard this whether it's because they are they they just lack the uh sense of of i would say uh respect or humility especially uh, when you're in another country and especially in a place like afghanistan where um it's very conservative uh it's uh, it's it revolves around a, a religion that uh um it takes up the majority of of the uh, religious practices that they uh, follow, um, I think the 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 biggest thing you really want to do is keep the lowest profile as possible. You don't want to stand out. You don't want to, you know, show that you are from a particular country um, where they may have a certain interest, or even for that matter, you just want don't want to, you know, stand out as a foreigner. Which it, for some people, it, it 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 doesn't work as easily as others. For uh, for people like me, um, and Eric, uh, you know, made made a uh, made a funny uh, comment about it, but I, I actually agree um, because Afghanistan is a, a multi-ethnic country where you have not only you know when we talk about Afghans, there is no real Afghan, uh, true Afghan. You're talking about Pashtuns, uh, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazara, uh, you name it. Um, yeah. I apparently uh, fall under the uh, fall under the, the facial characteristics of Hazara. So, if I were to not shave for the next seven months and grow whatever facial hair that I can, <laughs> um, then I you'd would be, be like Joe. I was, I was going <laughs> to drop that joke myself. I saw Joe. Wa- Joe is in his windup. <laughs> yeah. God damn it! And jump into a local fire. 
I would be able to blend in and pass on as a deaf Hazara, um, as long as I don't open my mouth. Um, but uh, it's all about keeping a low profile. And um, unfortunately for us as, um, and it depends on uh, the specific organization that you work for. For NGOs, it's a little bit more lax. Uh, they do allow uh, certain people to uh, a little bit more move, uh, freedom of movement. But uh, for diplomatic missions and uh, organization like myself, that's, certain, that's just uh, definitely okay. not the case. And to put that in the context of, of uh, for our listeners, of so if you're traveling internationally, that means you don't need to advertise that you're an American, um, or you know, meaning maybe you leave the baseball team and the baseball cap and the sports jersey in your at home. You don't need to wear that when you're out traveling around, um, and you um, try and be respectful of local customs there's the stereotype of the loud american and you are not required to live up to that stereotype when you travel overseas exactly and this goes back to uh the earlier comment made about how i love my uh my my earth color and my velcro and my patches and whatnot um and i'm sure I'm sure you guys, and I don't know if uh, your listeners have uh, have heard the term uh, gray man, and that is uh, certainly uh, uh, um, a, a term that is gaining more and more popularity uh, by the day. Every time I fly out of Afghanistan, and I, I basically travel every six weeks for my seven-day uh, uh, R&R, and, you know, it's just, you know, accumulating those miles and kind of looking around and you actually get to uh, get used to what it's like to uh, travel internationally and traveling to various different airports. Every time you fly out of Kabul and land in Dubai, you will always see that guy that has a long beard t-shirt with tattoos covered all over their arms and carrying, you know, a huge backpack with Molly webbing and Velcro patches with a tack hat and it and with cargo pants, um, and that certainly stands out. It stands out that probably you you are not you know a normal Joe Schmo. You probably are doing something that is of importance. And uh, uh, that mm-hmm. you in recent days within um, the uh, security professionals uh, community. Um, there's now a lot of talk and also the, uh, the small businesses that make these uh, types of gear have, uh, have moved uh, towards the trend of trying to maintain the functionality of those, uh, of that, of those tactical yeah. gear, but also keeping a low profile externally. Yeah. So um, I think that is also important that you don't want to stand out, but also screaming, you know, yeah, yay me, but kind of uh, be modest about everything. And I think that's, again, coming back to my original point, Dan, is that uh, you want to be able to maintain a low profile. And that also has to do uh, primarily with the mindset of being um, being humble about your local surroundings and also, yep. uh, you know, making sure that y- you you understand the norms and you don't want to basically, uh, uh, you basically want to be respectful uh, to, the, uh, to the local people there. Certainly they don't, you know... Uh, I think I think in any any country that you go to, uh, people just are they're used to their uh, daily lives and they just want to be left alone. There's they will certainly be welcoming yeah. and warm and hospitable. 
But if you do anything to disrupt that, certainly your presence already is something of a fascination uh, to uh, some people. And you don't want to go in there and start, you know, knocking down your beers or s- shooting off firecrackers or, you know, opening up a stinky uh, um, case of kimchi, in my case. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's all, it's all about trying to understand where, where you can be to compromise uh, in, in the middle ground and uh, showing that respect, showing the effort that you actually want to yeah. learn. Yeah. Uh, exactly what they're all about. And I think that goes a long way in terms of uh, keeping a low profile and as um, you know, as a matter of speaking, keeping yourself safe. Yeah. I think that's really true. And I think but I think that on the I guess on the flip side of that, the other thing that I would tell folks is um, if you're traveling internationally in the same way that we t- would tell people to do this in their hometown is to trust your gut <laughs> where if you get somewhere, even if it's a public place and it's a large public place, if something about it doesn't seem right leave and you don't need to make a big scene about it as you said you know be respectful um of your surroundings but if you're somewhere particularly with your family and something about it just seems off then leave you know no harm no foul Uh, yeah uh and we typically say and uh in your previous episodes you've mentioned uh really good points about um always uh understanding uh, where your uh, ingress and egress uh, points are, you want to be able to extricate yourself and your family um, out the safest way possible and yeah. just get that distance, uh, just get yeah. that distance yeah. as much as you can. Um, and I think that is uh, what it's all about in terms of if you're far away from uh, whatever might harm you, then it won't harm you, uh, basically. Right. And that's uh, basically the law of physics as we understand it. Yeah. But also, one, back to, one tip, and, yeah. and we'll, we'll put some links into the show notes for folks to go and look at. One thing from the State Department that I actually thought was very interesting and a good tip is, you know, cell phones may or, not, may, may or may not be an option where you're going or your individual cell phone plan may or may not be working where you're going. But Google Maps is an incredible tool and you can look up before you go the areas where you will be and you can take screenshots of your of a Google map of various locations and have that in your phone so you're ready to go. And I think that that's that's a tip that yeah. we can give folks that I think is very useful. And the other thing that I think people should do, particularly when they're traveling internationally, is, um, you know, the State Department website is a great resource. Check where embassies or consulates will be if you're going to be traveling internationally. Just so, you know, 99 times out of 100, you're not going to need that. But having been the victim of a pickpocket in Paris, I will tell you, knowing how to get to the U.S. Embassy (laughs) was a useful tool when that happened when I was in college. Um, and so, uh, doing a, just 10 or 15 minutes of research, uh, before you go to a foreign location can really pay off, uh, when it hits the fan. Yeah. I mean, and, just, and like what Jay said, just, if you try to just do your best to be one with the community and like, let them know you're trying to learn, I think that goes a long way. You said, Dan, knowing where the embassy was, it made me think of a story. My sister left her passport in a cab when she was in the Peace Corps in the Republic of Georgia, but she'd had a nice conversation. She was learning Georgian, talked to the guy. He ended up bringing it to the embassy, and they got it back to her. Like, 
it's fantastic. It's like it's just you're you're nice. You go an extra direct, you know, extra couple miles on something, or just try a little bit harder. People are people. Yep. They want to be nice. No one's Absolutely. inherently trying to be a dick. They want to be nice and and help you out. Yep. So um, I, I I made a couple of bullet points down on my notes here. Um, I love that you have notes, by the way. Thank you. Awesome, and awesome, bullet points it? are always welcome. Bullet Who points are this welcome. Guy? Yeah. Have, have you been Can talking to Can I throw up a PowerPoint on this Look at this guy prepared <laughs> for the podcast. <laughs> and most no, of our guests uh, have actually been far more prepared than we've ever been. The, uh, yeah. Oh. Our, our, uh, our solar storm ones. Uh, Denny gave us a very long outline, oh, which was very well prepared. We're not talking about space weather, Eric. <laughs> space weather is awesome. We're not talking about space weather. All right, Jay. I'm sorry that Eric interrupted you. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, just for bullet points alone, you're getting invited back. <laughs> yeah. Like, I was asking, can I throw up a PowerPoint slide on the uh, Skype call? Uh, actually, technically, yes, you could. But if you send it to oh, me, wait. I can put it in the show notes. Too much effort. Too much effort. <laughs> now, now you are one with the podcast. Like now you're now talking like a disaster. Page. You've gotten <laughs> get this man a child. <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, that Joe. Wow, just two weeks in a row, uh, two episodes in a row. You've got the uh, the dark joke. Well done. <laughs> I don't have Joey, anything else to contribute. Joey Rickles, bringing the bringing the heat. <laughs> All right, back to the bullet You were trying to make a serious uh, comment. Um, So two points, I mean, and I think I'm making only these two points because I think a lot of the situational awareness tips um, that um, were mentioned in the uh, previous episodes, they've pretty much been covered. But um, my biggest thing when I I walk around, and and it's really interesting, even when you're driving, when we drive around in Kabul, um, we want to look at... You know the the weird thing on the side of the road, uh, the 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 weird person that every time you pass through that um, same location, you know there's a, the same guy standing there, and it's a really eerie feeling when you fly back to the states and you jump on your rental and you just drive down 66, you know Dulles Access Road going to going down 66, and you you basically find yourself looking at that little trash bag on the side of 66 and you, you're wondering, you know, what, what is that? And uh, I think the environment really shapes uh, the type of situational awareness that you are accustomed to um, wherever you go. Um, my two things when it, when it comes to international travel or going to another uh, country is basically you want to avoid large crowds. Um, large crowds, it's a simple matter of physics. If it's anything above two or three to one, you are already outnumbered and you want to avoid any type of situation where you can uh, potentially be uh, be detained or dragged somewhere that, uh, you know, nobody will ever find you uh, and whatnot. Dark streets is also one of those things. If it's a dark street, um, um, same goes to when you walk along a street that is that has some traffic or uh, modern uh, level of traffic versus a completely empty street. Um, There's probably a reason for that. There's probably a reason why that particular uh, route is, uh, has low traffic. So I think those are uh, typically the two things that I would um, look out for uh, in terms of uh, situational awareness. Pre travel situational awareness is also very important. As Dan said, uh, uh, reading through state department advisories is very, very important. Usually they do have, 
what seems to be repetitive and generic information may be just enough to keep you away from a certain situation and save your life. Um, to, for me, and this this more goes into uh, where I have the benefit of working with uh, people from uh, several different countries um, as, uh, as a UN staff member, but um, one of the first things that I do is speak with someone who has the experience traveling where you want to travel or even better a person who is from that country um, where you want to travel um, basically getting the lay of the land of um, how do I get around what locations are safe for me to stay which hotels are good do you have any recommendations for safe transportation uh, those are very important Dan also mentioned um, and Jim, let me just, earlier let me jump yeah. in real quick there mm-hmm. You know, not everyone has the benefit of being able to have that type of local resource. Um, do some internet searches before you go places. Chances are, there will be blog posts or other, you know, other information out there for you to utilize that can give you some of that sense. Obviously, if it's on the internet, take it with a grain of salt. But if you're finding multiple people saying, "Hey, we went to this market and we got, we had a rough time," maybe that market isn't for you. So do a little bit of research before you go. And I think this day and age, and Dan, exactly what you said is, uh, along with internet search, if you merge those two together a little bit, I think, especially with social media, uh, this whole thing of six degrees of separation is actually, you know, something that is very, very real. So I'm pretty sure, even for people who uh, don't regularly interact with other nationalities, um, do know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody um, who has act- actually had that those uh, experiences in, in traveling in country X. So um, I think a combination of uh, both of that is very, very uh, useful. Um, you mentioned also uh, mobile phones, which is absolutely correct. When a lot of the a lot of countries um, um, where um, certain risks, uh, they're, they're prone to uh, certain risks. Um, one of the first things that they will do is shut down the uh, mobile service networks. Uh, they will shut down all the cell towers uh, just to get uh, just, it, it, that's part of one of their first uh, first steps in trying to uh, gain control of the situation mm-hmm. and to prevent further uh, from these bad guys from communicating with each other to launch any type of coordinated uh, follow on second uh, attack effort if there is should be in a terrorist attack. Um, and for you to overcome that, I would um, first of all, uh, go around, and I'm not trying to uh, endorse any spe- specific brand name or whatnot. Um, here in Afghanistan, and uh, we exchanged uh, exchanged uh, a text message earlier uh, today, Dan. Um, I T-Mobile provides a uh, free of charge uh, mobile um, roaming service for data and SMS for 140 countries where American citizens uh, frequently travel, according to their website. So basically, I have my phone here, which I have my 571 area code number, and I am able to have and we'll some. Put that, of, we'll put that phone number in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> 571 number. Um, um, to um, basically, I have internet on this, and I have uh, uh, SMS capability on this. But again, this is on roaming on the local cell towers. So um, yep. what? What, what, what I would suggest, and this is something that I have recently started doing, was to um, buy my own satellite phone and pay, the, um, pay my plan. I only do that because I know I tr- travel frequently. Um, I do travel to locations uh, a lot. 
Um, and having a sat phone, which um, probably about a 500-minute plan uh, would cost you about $500, uh, roughly. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're talking about $500 per year. It, it, and if you don't use it, it basically rolls over. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is a good investment, especially when you do travel and you, do, you may experience a situation where cell, cell towers will be, would be cut uh, pretty quickly. I yeah. think that is something that um, you might want to keep in mind. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have not traveled to Afghanistan. Spoiler alert. But uh, <laughs> I have traveled a bit in Asia. And one of the things that I've done in Asia where I uh, don't speak any of the languages uh, is generally in most of those uh, of the more developed Asian countries, you can buy a pay as you go phone at the airport. And a good tip for folks that are traveling in places where you don't speak the language, particularly if you can get a phone like that, is you bring the you get a business card at the concierge desk of the hotel where you're staying. And every time I got into a cab and the cabbies never spoke English, I would call my hotel and I would say, I'm a guest. I'm trying to get to wherever I was trying to get to. Can you tell my cabbie how to get there? And then I would hand the phone to the cabbie. And they would speak in Mandarin or Cantonese or Japanese or whatever the language happened to be where I was. And that system seemed to work very effectively. And for a, a relatively low cost, less than $500 at least for me out of pocket, you can get a fairly basic pay-as-you-go phone that for just phone call purposes worked pretty well. And he only so that's, really needs that's one kidney. Right. I, I was I managed to escape with both kidneys and my liver, which, as the other disaster dads have seen via this podcast, are both are all very important to me. So. No, um, and I mean, and, it, and, and two, I was just going to say, Jay, you're given like yeah. great international perspective, but it's just I, I just want to remind people it's good for local too. I mean, we're talking about international stuff, but if you're going to a different state or somewhere that you're not familiar with the area, you may have the language down, but you you have no idea where you are. You go to the airport and it's it could be like you're dropped in the middle of nowhere because you have no idea where you're going. Um, you know, all of those kind of things. So some of these concepts that you're giving are very very important. Dark you know dark roads in the United States. You know, stay away from. I was telling someone at pre-show. I was in Austin, Texas yesterday, and I couldn't catch a cab. Yeah, I couldn't catch a cab, so I'm trying to walk back, and the road I went down, all of a sudden, there's no one. No one on this street that I'm on. I'm, you know, normally not intimidated, but I still, I called my mom. I called her, and I'm like, in case I get mugged, just so you know, this is where I am. Can I have a conversation with you? And it's like, those things happen. So you called your mom, but not your wife. (laughs) She was already asleep. The wife was already asleep because of the time change. Mom. Hey, we all know mom makes everything better. Yeah. <laughs> love you, mom. Uh, love you both, all, everyone. But anyways, you know, no matter where you are, these concepts carry forward. So just because we've been talking international travel or whatever, if you do travel a lot in the States, keep these kind of things in mind. Right. Um, the other point um, in relation to that is um, as much as possible, uh, I would suggest – um, and this is also to keep uh, your, in, give a peace of mind to whenever you travel is to get a trusted mode of transportation. Yeah. Um, I try to um, at least get somebody because a lot of these countries, they have uh, drivers that um, do that for a living. Um, and not all countries have Uber. 
uh, like we do in places uh, like Lebanon. I, uh, oh, wait, but they do have Lyft, right? <laughs> Not in Austin. I mean, what are you talking about? I thought um, Afghanistan was mostly an Uber country, but whatever. <laughs> Thanks, I, Joe Rickles. All right, moving on. Did we just lose uh, another sponsor? <laughs> all right, ju- all right. We're we're at just about an hour mark, so we're going to start to wind this down. Jay, I have one final question for you, and I think it's the question that's on all of our listeners' minds, which was Mind. of all of the disaster dads. Uh-oh. Who there was the most inspirational for your fire department career? Oh, shit. We lost a connection. Jay to... is searching his country <laughs> for alcohol right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is this thing on? I can't I can't hear yeah. anything right now. <laughs> Crap. Oh, well done. Um, um, <laughs> hey, you don't... Je- okay, okay. You, you just don't see a lot of Asians in fire departments, do you? I mean... <laughs> No, that's true. I mean, I was definitely the guy who stood out. I'm not even you're, American. You're dodging um, the question, Jay. Who, who was your favorite instructor? Come on. Uh, uh, Rob. Oh, yeah, uh, Rob. Like, you're going to win that. <laughs> yeah. Rob, I'm, I'm sorry. I would say. Deputy Chief I'm, Screamy McScreamerson's going to win that award. I'm sorry. Am I leading the witness? <laughs> I, I would have to say. The the whole experience of first rolling into the fire department was pretty intimidating to me, but uh, it was it was also fascinating and cool at the same time. And um, and I'm not kidding when I say I. For those listening at home, this is what we call a pivot. Yeah, it, I equally uh, had I I was equally you know in shock and awe in terms of um, what I had been able to pick up from everybody, um, and that includes all the five uh, disaster dads here. Um, Stop being uh, nice to us. Yeah, got um, it. Right, Kelly and Conway, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let, let, let's let's face it. Eric, Eric, and Rob. Uh, I I've worked with you guys uh, uh, mostly through the training. The and you guys were the the, the lead instructors in a lot of the uh, the fireside. Whereas um, Frank, Joe, and Dan, um, we've uh, been on the uh, on ambulance. On ambulance 102 for uh, you, know, you know several 12-hour, 24-hour shifts, where um, one of you were either the crew chief or the uh, or the driver of the rig. Um, poor me being stuck in the back of the ambulance as a tech, but um, especially you know. if Frank was driving. Sorry. Yeah. Hey, come uh, on. Hey, if Eric was driving, you did not want to be sitting next to him, and I'm just going to leave it at that. I didn't know where I was going, so that's fine. And I could roll down the windows with the gas. I could roll down the windows with the gas. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's what I have to say. Uh, was that a was that a good uh, spokesperson no. type of response? No, that was a horrible answer. That was a no, terrible answer. We'll terrible leave it answer. at that. That's a big thumbs down. I do. I, I do will have though that you. But you Jay, know. I, I do think I think all of the disaster dads would agree with me in saying thank you very much for coming yeah. on. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate it. Please stay safe. Uh, while you're over there, and uh, first round of beers is on Joe when you get back here. Uh, <laughs> second round's on, on Rob since he never had his picture yeah. show up and didn't want first to show round, you his face. Second round's on, on Rob, Rob the buffering guy. <laughs> no uh, problem. We're going we're gonna to put up on the Facebook page a picture of Rob from this episode. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there we go. 
I will happily buy Jay a second round of beer. Forget the rest of you guys. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, Jay, uh, Jay, thanks a lot for joining us. Um, everyone else, thanks for listening. Again, visit us at DisasterDads.com, at DisasterDads on the Twitters and Facebooks. Love to hear from you. Uh, and um, Jay, since Dan won't do it, since he's been doing such a great job leading the charge, if you would like to sign us out with our um, our uh, uh, historically accurate and amazing tagline, uh, would love to hear from you. Well, thank you for listening to Disaster Dads. Uh, they panic, so you don't have to. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Excellent. Bye. Excellent. Perfect. Excellent.